On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about what happened in Saudi Arabia this weekend with the oil fields and how this is going to affect us. And oh, if you think it isn't going to affect us, eh, wrong. It is going to affect us. You'll hear why in a moment. We're also going to be chatting about the election and about what happens when all the parties seem to be poisoning the well. What happens at the end of it when we have to drink from that water at some point, which is a screwed up metaphor, I grant you. But when we have demonized all the leaders, when each of the parties has demonized the other leaders, what happens when the election's over and one of them has to lead us? And if that's all too heavy and too dark, stick around because Don Robertson is up at the end of that one. And I guarantee you it won't be quite as hefty. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Uh, You heard what happened on the weekend in Saudi Arabia. There were drone attacks. There were explosions at Saudi oil production facilities and fields. Um, Clearly, when you see the pictures, when you hear the stories, what we learned, what we know is this has become a massive blow to world oil production. And as a result, the prices of oil shot up today. Uh, Last number I saw was up basically 15% in one day, the price of crude oil, uh, up to 62.90 a barrel. I want to bring in someone here who knows how to put this into context for what this means to us, because I have to believe that at some point, some way, this is going to trickle down into our pockets, because everything that happens in the world that goes wrong seems to somehow trickle down into our pockets and reach into our wallets. Uh, His name is Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business. Sir, thanks for doing this today. Glad to be here. So first of all, before we get into the very, very specific to us, uh, absolutely no surprise when something like this happens that we would expect the prices to go right through the roof. Well, right. So again, just to give people some context, this is a fascinating story. So two Saudi Arabian oil fields were attacked by drones, unmanned, unpopulated drones, and fires were created. Almost immediately, Yemeni ter- uh, terrorists, people from Yemen, said, it's us, we did it. We did it. We want to teach those, those damn Arabs uh, a lesson in Saudi Arabia. But almost as quickly, world um, forces, police forces, what have you, released their information to say, well, yes, technically the drones left from Yemen and went to Saudi Arabia, but really they're backed by Iran. Aha, Iran has reared its head. Now, why would Iran want to talk, uh, attack Saudi Arabia? And the answer is that these oil fields belong to a company called Aramco, A-R-A-M-C-O, Aramco. It's the world's largest oil company. It had been privately held by the Saudi royal family, but in the next little while, they had planned to have an IPO, to do publicly traded shares in it, and it would be the largest IPO probably in, uh, in history, given the size of this oil company. So it would appear the Iranians were trying to disrupt this initial public offering and teach Saudi Arabia some kind of a lesson. Because all of this then talks to Middle Eastern politics and between different Arab nations, you add that to the fact that this is the world's largest oil company, and that's why oil prices shot up today the way they did and may not be done. We may see it go up some even, uh, even more tomorrow. Once we get over $60 a barrel, in a way, uh, I can tell you you're going to see this at the pumps, maybe not tomorrow or the day after, but the low oil prices that you've been enjoying, the low gasoline prices you've been enjoying, are going to change in the next few days. And again, I want to get to that in just one second. Is this, obviously this is a bigger company and this is more impactful, I guess. The last time I remember something like this or visuals of something like this was at the end of the Gulf War when Saddam Hussein lit the Iraqi oil fields on fire. 
that didn't. Did that have much of an impact? What was the impact then compared to this? Well, it, I, so just again, I don't mean to correct you, but it was actually Please do. Kuwaiti oil. Kuwaiti, field. thank you, Kuwaiti, of as, course. Yeah. As he was exiting Kuwait, he lit them on fire, and at the time, of I course. can remember people saying, "Oh my God, this is going to take years to put them out." And instead, a crack team of people who know how to fight these fires actually got them out in less than a year. But absolutely, it also drove the price up. And why? Uncertainty. Nobody knew how long it was going to take. Nobody knew how much oil was going to be affected. Nobody knew what other things might be done. In this case, there's uncertainty. But since we sort of know all of the players, it's simply uncertainty as to whether this um, uh, is going to spin out of control with one Arab nation attacking another, and I can even say it a different way to you, one OPEC member attacking another. OPEC is that cartel that tries to control oil, uh, not only the production but the pricing of oil, and to suddenly have one member attack another member, well, is that the beginning of OPEC? That's what causes the uncertainty in the market. And I think of all the times you've been on here, Marvin, that word you just used probably is one that comes up as as much as any. And when we talk about stock markets or anything else, uncertainty, and you've, I think, made it clear about 150 times on here uh, that investors and people with money like things that are a little more certain. They don't like the unexpected. Right. And this came, in a way, out of nowhere. We're not shocked that this happened. We know there are tensions between Arab nations. But this is, this is a pretty big thing to have one Arab country take on another and in this way. Uh, rather than doing it directly, which normally they do, they're not ashamed of who they are. Instead, they're doing it surreptitiously. We get Yemeni terrorists to go after Saudi Arabia, but it's really Iranian terrorists. What, are, what is truly their end game? Who else might they attack? It re- opens up so many questions that the market gets scared. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about the the strikes on the Saudi fields, the millions of barrels of oil that are being now burned up and not being out there on the market and the price now going through the roof. Uh, Marvin Ryder joins us from the DeGroote School of Business. And Marvin, before the break, you had said, and and want to let you get into this a little bit, that uh, down the road, it seems inevitable that there's going to be some kind of trickle down to the consumer. How significant a trickle down would you expect there would be? Well, first, again, I I hate it when I do this to you. I don't mean to to correct you, but we're not talking millions of barrels burning at this point in Saudi Arabia. The the two oil fields are huge, but they'll quickly be able to turn off some taps and and limit the amount of damage that's doing. The question is how fast they can get that infrastructure repaired and get all that oil flowing again. Okay, because I was going, but CNN had reported that it was 5.7 million barrels a day that was being lost by these fires. Well, lost in the sense that it's not being pumped. It's not the fires burning it up, but they're... That, that's oil that would have been coming out of the ground that's been turned off until they can get the infrastructure going. So, yeah, oil costs $62 a barrel today. Uh, I would expect you're going to see at the pump uh, gasoline prices get up to $1.20, $1.25 a liter. Uh, we've been enjoying gasoline more on the range of $1.08, $1.10 a liter. So, yeah, 10 to $0.15. Cents. Now, the whole question is for how long. The hope, the hope, and we won't know yet for another couple of days till the engineers can get in there, that this might only last a week or so, and then they'll get everything repaired, everything will get flowing again, and we'll get back to normalcy. If it turns out this is a capacity that's lost for a month or two or three, 
then expect gasoline prices to stay high right until right until Christmas time. Uh, we've heard that there that the president down the states is going to release some of the uh, reserves that have been tucked away for I guess moments like this. Uh, how much does that do to stem the impact or do anything? Well, again, the whole trick will then be to watch the world price of oil. Today it shot up to sixty-two, I think sixty-two fifty a barrel. Uh, if he releases, and depending upon how much he releases, that should release pressure on that. See the price fall back below sixty dollars. Then, yes, you won't see the price go up as much. Um, the question is just how much Donald Trump wants to release. When he's in charge of something, it's always terribly unpredictable for how long and how much, what have you. But look, any of that sort of stuff is good news for us. It's not good news, however, for Alberta. So Alberta, uh, we really need world oil prices to be over $60 a barrel to make the Alberta supply of oil, in particular the tar sands oil, uh, economical again, to see them producing at the kind of levels they want. As you know, Alberta's been in a bit of a slump economically, and they would really love to see world prices get over $60. Then they can turn back on some of that capacity that they've had to shut off when prices have been very low. Just as proof that I really do listen when you're on here, you have told us before, too, about the impact on not only the loony, but how oil drives the Canadian economy, or has traditionally. And it makes me wonder when you see something like this. You you just mentioned about people like predictability, the Middle East, all the stuff. I'm I'm looking at the, the greatest disruptions in oil history right now in a list in front of me. All but, I think, two are in the Middle East. Does it make us rethink the whole pipeline thing? I know we have the environmental fight and all the rest of this stuff, but as far as bolstering Canada's economy, does something like this, when we look and say, you know, we could be that reliable, predictable source of oil in the world, does it make us rethink that? Well, uh, that's a $50 million question. Let me see if I can answer this a couple of ways. To the rest of the world, Canada is seen as a wonderful, reliable, safe you know, steady as a rock kind of a supplier. That's why so many people would love to buy our oil if we can get it to one of the coasts. And and given that we're talking about Alberta oil to the most, the coast that makes sense is the West Coast. The Trans Mountain Pipeline, as it stands today, is full, 24 hours a day, moving oil. But even that is not enough to keep up with world demand. So this is why the whole idea was to twin that pipeline because we don't have a twinned pipeline, and that oil isn't just going to sit static, that's why we're having hundreds of thousands of train cars go through the Rockies, taking oil to the West Coast to be shipped. Uh, that's not an economical way. It actually causes the oil in Alberta to be worth less, because they have to pay more to have it shipped by train car. So Alberta's depressed on one side, but if we were to twin that pipeline, uh, we could actually get more oil to the coast, and people like China would much prefer to buy from a reliable source than an unreliable source. Our problem actually isn't that the government doesn't want to build the pipeline. Twice, Justin Trudeau and that Liberal Party have approved the pipeline. It is the various court challenges, and I, I, I don't ever want to play this too cavalierly here. I'm not saying environmentalists don't have some right concerns. It's just to me that pipeline in particular, since we're talking about twinning an existing pipeline using the exact same land that has already been set aside, it makes more sense to me than building a virgin pipeline over brand new territory. I think there I side more with the environmentalists, but since we've already set this aside, 
why wouldn't we want to take this opportunity to take advantage of these world conditions? I do wonder, and we got to go in a second here, I do wonder when, and hopefully it doesn't come, but you know, everyone's talking about a recession that is looming, and whether it does or whether it doesn't, I do wonder if, if that day arrives and if the Canadian economy needs some sort of big jolt to get back on track, if this doesn't become the thing, again, that everyone is pointing at, saying, look, here's our thing, here's our way, here's our way to stimulate the economy. Yeah, unfortunately, what will happen is what really causes a recession is the private sector starts to not spend money on things, whether it is expanding their plants or expanding their inventories or producing things. And then we turn to the government, and they typically spend the money on infrastructure. Now, a new pipeline would be there, but remember, this is something that they're already planning to spend money on. It would be other kinds of infrastructure, I think, that would get the attention. It's just that we need to get moving on this. If you start a new pipeline today, it still takes three years to get done. Who knows what it's going to be like in a few years. And, and that's why I understand, again, people say, well, we're going to build a pipeline. In 20 years, we're not going to need it. But, you know, that's a long time, and we're still going to be dependent upon oil, if not for fuel, for turning into plastics and other kinds of things we make out of petroleum. I don't see it going away at all in my lifetime. Shifting, yes not going away. That's why I'm fine with it. And here's another example on the world stage of where Canadian oil would be preferred in a day like today, as opposed to the more risky oil out of the Middle East. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Still waiting. We're still pushing for that doctorate from the school. We'll get that eventually. <laughs> Soon to be Dr. So Marvin Ryder. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Bye-bye for now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have seen already a fair amount of nastiness on the federal election campaign trail. We knew this would happen. We talked about it on this show last week. We talked about it with Stephen Drew. You may have remembered we were having that conversation about how we seem to be entering an area, a time when it's not just enough to pitch your own ideas, certainly. It's not just enough to point out the difference between you and your opponent or opponents. It's not even enough to point out that your opponent might be wrong for the view that they hold compared to your view. It seems that a fair amount of politics in 2019 is going a step even beyond that and demonizing in a lot of ways the leaders who are not sharing your party with you. That their view, it's not enough that it's wrong, it's immoral, it's evil, it's somehow deeply, deeply troubling that somebody would hold that view. You've seen it. And I would suggest that there are costs to this, long-term costs that come after the election is over. I want to bring in Tim Harper. He is a national affairs columnist. He was with the Toronto Star for many, many years, still writes for them occasionally. He spent two decades in Ottawa covering politics, uh, dealing with this stuff. Although, Tim, I'm not sure that when you were there, it was quite as nasty. I mean, it's always been a little bit, but I don't know. Was it always as nasty as this, or have we sort of stepped it up a little bit? Well, you know, Scott, i got to be honest with you. I find uh, the, the first week or the first six days of this campaign rather disheartening. Uh, I agree with everything you said at the outset. Um, it, you would think that we might be on the verge of some real debate in this country because there are some very important issues that need to be aired during this campaign. Um, and today, uh, maybe I should just stay off my Twitter feed, but today all I see is, <laughs> Um, who bought drinks for Faith Goldie and who appeared with Faith Goldie, you know, whose campaign uh, has a, uh, a nominee who's friends with her, um, and, and all this back, going back years, torching people for uh, social media posts and so on. I, if anybody's paying as close attention to it as you and I, I think uh, they, they would be a little 
uh, weary of this already. Uh, maybe I could take some solace to the fact that most Canadians are out there uh, pursuing other uh, day-to-day goals. Uh, maybe aren't getting dragged down this rabbit hole. But I got to tell you, it's it's not been very pretty. And I think your word, your first word, was perfect. I hadn't you I hadn't thought of it, but disheartening is a terrific word for that because. I think that what ends up happening is you do hear this a few times and you hear someone, I mean, everyone's got their own points of view. And so you hear someone tell the leader who reflects your point of view, whatever it may be, that they are evil or they are immoral or whatever it is for having that point of view. And you say, well, they've just said that I'm evil or I'm immoral for thinking what I think I'm tuning out. And I think it doesn't do any good for politics to have all kinds of people saying, why am I staying in this? Why am I listening to this when you're just calling me names? Yeah, I fear you're right. Um, there's, there probably is some kind of massive tune-out, at least early on. But those who aren't tuned out are just living in a, in a, um, a massive echo chamber where they're, um, they don't move from their lanes. And um, you're right, it, it's beyond uh, I disagree with you or we have a different point of view. Uh, it's demonizing and it's... Um, uh, as you point out, it, it, it's evil, and um, uh, this is fundamentally wrong, and there's no room for debate here. I understand. Look, I've been around politics for decades, and I understand uh, a good war room uh, destabilizes another campaign. The liberals have been doing that, by and large, to Andrew Scheer. But, uh, and I, I'm not sticking all the blame on this with the liberals, but you'd like to think that uh, after four years this government would – be more concerned with uh, either defending its record, promoting its record, or uh, as we keep being told, we're going forward. Um, the party that's going forward has been spending all its time in the war room going backward, trying to uh, ferret out some real or imagined uh, uh, crime of, uh, of words or actions or video of uh, conservative candidates. And, um, you know, maybe this is just the early sparring and we will move it to a different level, but um, as I say, uh, the early returns aren't good. Is this entirely, in your mind, a byproduct of us looking at the states and almost seeing it as a mirror, and we've just adopted the angry political style that's filtering up here through them? Oh, well, part of it is, it's interesting. You know, we talk about a uh, uh, what a polarizing figure Donald Trump could be and, and his style of, you know, vitriol and name-calling and so on. Um You've got a, a liberal leader here, Justin Trudeau, who inspires those who don't like him, like really don't like him. I guess you could say the same thing of opponents of, of Stephen Harper. But um, without even having to go on social media, um, I hear talk and allegations about uh, uh, Trudeau, the man, uh, much more so than the policies, that uh, I haven't heard for years. So I, um, we're dealing with a polarizing leader. Um and we're dealing with um, a, a, a very polarized, po- polarized nation right now, in my view, in terms of what is important to voters in one end of the country as, composed, uh, as compared to voters in another end Absolutely. of the country. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, there's, a, there's a, a huge divide. There uh, seems to be a, a series of different election campaigns uh, going on instead of any kind of um, big national debate as we've had in the past. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Tim Harper, former columnist with the Toronto Star, uh, longtime columnist in Ottawa covering politics, all the ups and downs and 
And yet, as we were talking about just before the break, it is particularly nasty right now. This election is not, it is disheartening, I think was the word we chose. And so, Tim, you get through this thing now. When this election is over, October 21st, I think, I can't remember now what the date is, but four weeks from now, five weeks from now, you get through this thing. And so the sides have not just argued that the other positions, the other parties' ideas aren't good, their ideas are better. That's that's fine if you do that. They have painted them, as we've said, as evil or as immoral or whatever else. Whoever wins, how do they govern a country when a chunk of the electorate has already then decided, based on the campaign, that the person who now holds power is really evil, more than just wrong, is an evil person with immoral views? Well, uh, let's take a look at the country generally. This is not meant to be, you know, uh, an exclusive delineation, but pretty well. If you look at the polling data right now, Scott, everything from the Manitoba border east looks to be like very fertile liberal territory. Yep. Everything from the Manitoba border west uh, looks to be quite um, uh, strong for Andrew Shears conservatives. You could almost hear the uh, frustration from Alberta the night of October 21st that Trudeau was returned, yet it shut out in the Conservatives sweep Alberta. Um, look at some of the issues. The the the, seat, uh, the Bill 21, the uh, Religious Symbols Legislation in, in Quebec, yes. uh, no federal leader is uh, going to uh, talk about intervening now. As repugnant it is, as it is to most of the rest of Canada, it's the third rail. You don't uh, you don't intervene in Quebec on this because it's popular in Quebec and you have to win seats in Quebec. Look at um, the SNC-Lavalin saga. Um, if it's going to damage Trudeau, uh, it's damaging him in English Canada. In Quebec, it helps him uh, because they uh, they agree with the jobs argument when it comes to SNC-Lavalin, why. He was pressuring his attorney general, as the uh, ethics commissioner has, has concluded. So we we don't ha- even deal with the same issues in different provinces or different parts of the country. And when you talk about national issues, they cut totally different ways um, when you uh, deal with questions like the carbon tax, the most obvious one, which is quite popular here in Ontario, and I think will probably deliver quite a number of seats to the Liberals again. Um, fervently opposed in uh in Alberta, uh, and part in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, parts thereof, and, and in parts of British Columbia. So, uh, to your larger question, how does one unite and govern? Well, we weren't united uh, when the writ was issued last week. Uh, I I despair uh, that we'd be united. Uh, when the final votes are counted the night of October 21st. And if we need to throw one more nasty little bit into the mix, there's a story today. Uh, the Jugmeet Singh, NDP leader Jugmeet Singh, says his party is happy to welcome sovereignists, Quebec sovereignists, into its ranks if, if they want to come. And a lot of people are saying, wait a second, why are you stirring this up? We don't need separatists now getting fuel in the fire. We've got enough things going on. But presumably the problem, the fear, Tim, is that, okay, when the election is over, whoever wins now may have a gurgling group of separatists who now want to be heard again. How much power they'll have, who knows? But it's all these things that, my goodness, how do you possibly, it's just we add more divisions along the way instead of bringing people together. Yeah, it's largely a a dormant issue in Quebec and and across the nation. Yet, Elizabeth May, of course, had to deal with it last week. When she um, welcomed Fiona Nantel, the former New Democrat, 
um, as, a, as a green candidate in Quebec and completely fumbled the whole question of whether he was a, a sovereignist or separatist and indeed what that actually meant. So you're right. Today you've got Jagmeet Singh uh, taking the former uh, green leader uh, in Quebec for long uh, in as an NDP candidate. And then the question of whether he would support separatism comes up. And he, not right now, but maybe 15, 20 years. Um, so uh, all of a sudden, a, a question that had been quite uh, dormant, um, you're right, is now playing out with the progressive parties on the left. And the irony, of course, is that if you, if you foresee what the, the polls are telling you right now, um, it's fine for the uh, New Democrats and the, and the Greens to debate about whether they would accept sovereignists or not. Neither of them are likely to. The NDP should be completely wiped out in Quebec as it is now. But whoever uh, whoever becomes prime minister because of this, if you light the kindling, even if you're not there to put out the fire, someone is probably going to have to deal with this. Oh, make no mistake. You know, uh, when we're talking about Bill 21 and the religious symbols, which is an aside, you know, remind your listeners, um, Jagmeet Singh, while campaigning with a turban in Quebec, he wouldn't be able to be allowed to, yeah. to, to teach a class as a teacher in Quebec with that turban uh, on his head. So, and yet he's I mean, saying we're welcoming you to, to come join us. It's pretty. It's a pretty weird right. contrast I, that I he's. Mean, we have gone right down the rabbit hole here, have we? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, make no mistake. The the question after the uh, election night. Um, uh, autopsies and, and so on. The question of a federal intervention uh, on, in a court case um, opposing the religious symbols uh, legislation in Quebec is not going to go away. Um, yeah. And this is it's not going to go away as a, as a, uh, a campaign issue. Uh, leaders are going to be asked about this again. Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of them. Tim, we got to run, sadly, but there's a yeah. ton of them, and they are. It is just it's divisive, 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 piled on divisive. And I, I just, I, as you say, I, I'm a little concerned for what happens when this thing is over. But we've got five uh, weeks to go, Scott. Oh, yeah, we'll we'll talk to you again before then, Tim. We always love having you on. But that is Tim Harper from the Toronto, formerly from the Toronto Star. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for taking it. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in. Oh, by the way, I just got a text from the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs with the correct answer. So there you go. He clearly qualifies based on my criteria that I laid out. Don is a genius then. I, I'm sure, and I'm sure he will tell that to city council when he speaks to say, them looking for the new stadium. We'll alert council. We'll see how many of them get it. Well, we'll see. You know what? Depending on how many people get this, that'll probably determine the genius quality of it, uh, whether or not. Oh, and Steve Milton from The Spectator just also texted me with the correct answer. So he too is a genius. There you go. Oh, and uh, and oh, and Don's wife, the genius geniuses or genii. I don't know what the plural is. Are popping up all around. I haven't got a clue what it was, <laughs> so I'm not in that group. I can tell you that. Uh, again, let me just say it one more time. If the lines are ringing, hang in there. If they're not, call right back. If they're busy, because Ben will get to you as fast as he can. Uh, Don Robertson in studio. He is the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys of ComChoice Realty. Uh, and, and most importantly, these days, he was the co-chair of the committee that finally was able to cut a ribbon for the J.L. Greitmeyer Arena in Dundas. They built the pyramids in Giza faster than they rebuilt the Greitmeyer Arena. I'm just saying, you, it wasn't your fault. You were pushing them, but they, um, the Sphinx went up in a shorter time. I tried to make it as positive as we could, right? So start off by thanking all the people in Dundas for getting Hockeyville and all that stuff. 
<clears throat> I said, and I don't want to dwell on a negative, but I was 22 years old when this thing started. <laughs> it's true. The International Space Station had not been launched before this <laughs> thing began. Anyway, it's absolutely it's done. It looks gorgeous. Great. Yeah, it's done. It looks terrific. So Dundas have a fabulous hockey facility, and now we need one for the city. Well, we probably won't talk about that today. We'll have plenty of opportunity coming up because- We uh, will. I believe it's coming up, uh, well, I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's supposed to be coming up at City Council this week, although now I've heard rumblings that perhaps there will be a one-week delay before it gets going or gets discussed. I don't know. We will see. Um, but, yeah, there will be plenty of opportunities. And, and here's the funny thing about that. And I, when I say funny, again, not ha-ha funny, like ironic funny. Everybody, it's just, you know, I wrote something in the paper three weeks ago, maybe saying, look, the city of Hamilton cannot afford to allow this to become another stadium or LRT debate. We can't, we can't deal with that kind of a divisive, angry, rather than community building a community destroying kind of fight. And you know what, Don, I've been hearing people talking and it's sounds exactly the same. The, uh, I, I think one of the major differences is, well, I know, I know what one of the, <clears throat> where the, uh, where the city got handcuffed last time on the stadium debate was that the funding model was, uh, subject to having a legacy tenant, which gave the Hamilton Ticats all the power and all the control. And, uh, to my knowledge, I don't believe that the Hamilton Ticats, made a financial investment in the stadium. Well, they've made operating investments in the stadium. They've paid operating fees for it, but I believe you're correct. Not for I, the construction. I don't believe there was capital money put up, but there has been money spent for sure. But in this case, if in fact what I've read in the Hamilton Spectator is true, that would have been you as the author. So I'm hoping it was. Uh, uh, Michael Andlars offered to match dollar for dollar for the city. So I think the scenario was far different. Um, so it should be easier sailing, I would hope. I would think, anyway. We, we will We will see. We, we, as I say, we're going to have, uh, I, by the way, it is October the 2nd is going to be up in front of uh, City Council for a discussion. And uh, we'll see where it goes from there. We'll see. I mean, it, it, it could advance from that point or it could, who knows what could happen. I mean, I, I honestly don't, but my only discouragement about this is that the very thing that you want to avoid seems to be happening again. And, and Don, things like the LR- I think it's, I think it's being, uh, it's coming to a head. Well, I don't, I hope. Because well, it's being pushed to a head. We, things like a stadium, things like an arena, things like an LRT are supposed to be, in my mind, if you're putting that much public money into it, they're supposed to be community building apparatuses, apparati. Again, we're back into the plurals. I don't know. They're supposed to help bring the community together. They're central point. And it seems like every time we do one of these big projects in Hamilton, it's always a community fight that results, not a community building thing. Now, in the end, has the stadium been, been a community building facility? I, I don't know. Some people would say yes. Some people would say no. Well, uh, will the LRT be a community building thing once it's done? Well, you're right. I, I, I'm... I'm like a dog on a bone. I think they should have built the stadium at the waterfront. I said that Saturday. I well, think. unless like, it's on wheels, that's like not do fixable now. Like all grown-up cities in North America try and do to enhance the 
public use, get people where they want to go. I might even have been parking down there. Anyway, that ship sailed, and you asked me about J.L. Greitmeyer, so yes. it was a packed house. I expected there would be a, spat, a small crowd, spattering of people, uh, and the lobby was jammed, and it was absolutely wonderful. The Lioness Excellent. gave us another 10, that's $20,000 in Dundas, with Dundas Lioness go towards TV in the Wall of Fame and the Hockeyville Room upstairs. Looks like we might get occupancy by November 1st, which is on us because we had to raise the money. It's been a little tough pumping air in the tires when it took so long to do, but we'll get it done. Anyway, it's, it's a wonderful facility. Good. A lot of people happy. And uh, yes, and especially uh, people who are skating and playing hockey and whatever else in Dundas, um, it is time. I will point out, as I did from the outset of this thing when I, uh, I co-chaired with Russ Powers, the uh, the nicest dressing rooms in the entire facility, all for minor hockey. The junior season, Dundas Real McCoys will still use the small, stinky little rooms we had. We uh, we did not get new palatial dressing rooms, and uh, that was my plan. Sadly, it worked to perfection. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, I got a lot of things I want to ask about. Uh, let's start with this one because it's the news that came out today, and it's uh, I want to talk about this broadly, not specifically. I mean, the, the story was that Ben Roethlisberger, the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, is now out. He's I don't even know how old he is now, 35, 36, something in that ballpark. Um, blew out his elbow, has to have Tommy John surgery, which usually you think of as a baseball yeah. surgery, but it's a football thing too for guys who throw. And he says this afternoon, he said, you know what, I'm going to come back better than ever from this. Do you believe at what what athletes do you believe, or at what age do you believe that an athlete really believes that when he says I'm going to come back better than ever? Because I don't believe that Ben Roethlisberger thinks that for one second. I think what Ben Roethlisberger is thinking right now is I've still got X number of millions of dollars tied up in me not retiring. Because if I retire, I don't get that money. So I'm coming back better than ever. Keep the paychecks coming. Well, I think he's protecting his brand. Yes. Um, I, for the life of me, don't know NFL quarterbacks that seem to get better year after year once they've hit 35, other than unless your name's Tom Brady. Yes. Uh, We had it two weeks ago when Serena Williams... 37, by the way, he is. 37. Serena Williams suggested that that was the worst match she'd played, trying to justify, justify losing. We chatted about that. And I think athletes, when they get, you know, um, closer to the end than the start of their careers, say that, hoping that they themselves and their fans will believe it. But there's one thing you can't stop, and that's the, uh, that's the time clock. Ben Roethlisberger, this year, will be making, let me add it all up here, will be making $45 million this year, if you add all of his signing bonuses and everything else. Next year, $21 million, and the year after, $19 million. So if he says right now, my arm is sore, I've got to have this surgery, I'm done, he's basically throwing $40 million away. There's no chance he's going to say, I'm no, no way he's not saying I'm coming back better than ever. Sure, that's right. Well, he's not going to say, well, you know, I'm going to think about this. But the interesting thing is, and the, and the part that, that uh, perhaps you can, I can't relate to it, so he's going to make $45 million yes, this year. Yep. I'm pretty sure he didn't play for free last year. And when you get to be 37 and next year, 
unless my math is wrong, I'm not good at math, he'll be 38, I would suggest to you that you got to start thinking about the rest of your life. Like he's got a fair amount of cash in the bank already and this is going to sound stupid. What's another $21 million mean? Well, well so it would mean a lot to, to me because I'm a realtor. You as a sports columnist, not likely so yeah, much. But here's what, he's, here's what he's made in his career, and this is only on-field stuff. So any endorsements or whatever else, this is above it, and it's all U.S. dollars. In 2004, right after he was drafted, he signed a six-year $22.26 million contract, which seems bizarre now that he's being paid double that for one year Six years to start with. So anyway, 22 and a quarter. Then in 2008, when that was up, he signed, it wasn't up yet. They, they, re, they extended a six-year $87.9 million contract. It's almost $100 million. And then in 2015, signed a four-year $87.4 million extension. So he has made, give or take, $200 million U.S. in his career uh, minus the 40 that he would be owed if he was to retire now. And the thing about it is, he here's the beauty of being in his position right now. Even if he doesn't want to come back, you don't retire. You just, uh, I'm not being able to fully recover. It was an injury on the job, blah, blah, blah. I still need, it's ju- you just can't say, I'm retired. But he said the right thing for today, for his own brand. Like, I'll be back better than ever. That didn't cost anything. Nope. And he might have walked out of the stadium and saying, there's a fat chance I'm coming back, but it sounds good. You're right. I mean, he can pull up lame, he can get a sore ankle, but he probably looks at Brady and like, how does Brady keep going? And that's how competitive these guys are, though. Like, Brady's only playing because he wants to. He certainly can't need the dough. Bet- I haven't even looked up, maybe we'll do it in the commercial break, how much Tom Brady has made. Now, Tom Brady probably, I bet you Tom Brady has made less than Ben Roethlisberger because Brady has usually played at a discounted Right. He's never taken the full amount that he could have got from New England. If he had decided as a free agent he was going to leave, I guarantee you he would have made more on other teams. Like, look at the when Joe Namath left San Francisco to go to Kansas City or pick your your guy who went somewhere else. Not Joe Namath. Or not, who did I say Joe Namath? Uh, uh, Joe Montana. Yep. Thank you. Sorry. Um, he was doing wrong the, ge- wrong wrong era, wrong he generation. He was doing nylon ads at that point. But no, I mean, you, Tom Brady 10 years ago as a free agent – you don't think that there would have been a team that would say, no. you name your price, we'll give you anything, and you can come here. He could have made many, many, many more tens of millions more than he did. This might be why hockey's such a great sport. I mean, you didn't have to do the math and be a wizard to think that Wayne Gretzky might retire in 1999. But he did. He could still compete, and he probably still could have got a big contract for somebody and played till he was 43 or 44, just on his name alone, but walked away with a great deal of pride and some money. I am as big a Gretzky fan as there is, but, you know, he he clearly, he at that point was not Tom Brady today. Gretzky was beyond great for when he was great, but he, by the end, he was pretty average. He was pretty average. And thankfully, he was not the guy who decided he was just going to keep it going to keep playing. You I made my s- point though. Yeah, but I'm so thankful for that. But unlike like Tom Brady is still playing at an exceptional level. Yes. He's not just hanging in because he can make money. If you were right now to go to any, and almost, not everyone, there are five or six guys that probably teams that would not want one. But you could go to 25 NFL teams right now and say, 
Would you like Tom Brady? You can have Tom Brady play for you if you want. And they would all say yes. They would all say yes. Who are, I don't, the, who are the five that would say no? I think Kansas City would probably say no. Yeah. They got a pretty good guy there. Um, You're right. There'll be five. There'd be four or five that yeah. you would look at and say, no, we've got, we're, we're happy with the guy that we have. He's, he's pretty there, good. There would be some owners throw a pretty good quarterback that they've got under the bus to get him. Well, because you probably figure that if look if we're in a uh, if we're in a market that's not necessarily filling the stadium right now, Tom Brady would do that. Now, <laughs> the thing is, Jacksonville might take him. Uh, Jacksonville. How about Miami? <laughs> I'm reason- you could play in Miami. I'm I'm reasonably sure I could. It is it is really ugly. But I go back to Roethlisberger. I just I, I I'm interested when. When it is, and I don't think there's an, a, an age for everybody, but there's a there does seem to be a point that most athletes start to realize that it's gone, most, and lose interest. It seems, and that's that's the to me that's the biggest thing is the I think Tiger Woods fell off for that long stretch that he did not because he suddenly lost the ability to hit a golf ball. He was distracted. He lost the interest. He lost the focus. He lost the obsession with golf that had been there. It's when you lose the interest and you have other things in your life and you start to realize that you're mortal and you slow down. And I think Roethlisberger, he, he, he looked, I think it was, who was it? Deion Sanders a week or two ago made the comment that he looks very, no, very uninterested. He does. Yeah. Brady looks interested. You can't bring that back either. Once that starts to slide, I mean, I've seen it with players and. You have to want to play, and you know, especially at our level when they're not making any money to speak of, right? But you got, it doesn't matter what level you're at. You still have to want to play, and when you don't, when you lose that passion, you're more apt to get hurt mm-hmm. because you're not as sharp as you should be. You're just trying to get through it and walk through it, and you're more susceptible to injury and mental fatigue and everything else. I mean, I, I didn't see the play in which he blew his elbow out. It was just but, a throw. No, he may have been injured. It may have been injured before then, and he just it finally went. I mean, he could have got a hit or two or five. Maybe that's why he looked average. Maybe he was playing hurt. Could be, could be. There is a uh, for anyone who listens to podcasts out there. The their ESPN has a series of podcasts. It goes along with their thirty for thirty documentary series. They have a podcast series that goes with it. And they have one on Ricky Henderson who, after he was out of the majors, decided he was not done with baseball. He still had this burning passion to play baseball and went and played in an independent league somewhere in California, in San Diego somewhere. And all the rest of the guys are, I mean, it was, it was essentially like the Hamilton Cardinals league. And all of a sudden you go to your first day of practice and there's the greatest leadoff hitter in the history of baseball running around and doing his thing and stealing bases and... I mean, he may not have been good enough to be in the majors, but that's unusual that you would still have a guy who now has is not making the money, is not getting the spotlight, is not getting the glory, but just still loves it enough that he wants to keep doing it. I mean, that's what you guys do. Yeah. Yeah, no, they, they, they're playing because they want to, and it's probably something he always wanted to do and said, I don't need any money. I'm going to go and do it and see how good I can be at it. Who, uh, was it Deion Sanders, right? Was Did the two? Did both. Yeah. At a high level. At a very high level. And Bo Jackson. Him. Yep, Bo Jackson. I I think Tom Brady has also figured out uh, that when you stop, you don't come back. Some guys have. 
Yeah. But who's the who's the athlete who has and I'm not I don't have one in mind. I'm throwing this out there. Who is the athlete who has ever retired? I don't mean stepped away because of some health thing like Mario Lemieux or something where he had to. Who's the athlete who decided I'm done and then came back better than he was or even as good as he was before? I'm sure there are. But they don't come to mind. Not Guy Lafleur, but he came back and was effective. He could play. Yeah, but he wasn't the flower. No, he wasn't. Well, he was, I, I said you can't stop time. If the only, if, if you get an, the only guys that are going to be able to do that are guys that maybe hang them up in their twenties, and then decide at twenty nine or thirty one they want to come back, maybe. But if you retire, basically like Lafleur retired, I, as far as I know, it was time, and then all of a sudden there's enough money there that maybe it's not time. You play in Quebec. More often than not, you become Muhammad Ali. Yeah, you're you're not and, and fighting Trevor Burbick in the Bahamas and getting the crap kicked out of you, and everyone's now looking at you, feeling sorry for you, which is, uh, to me, that we go back to Gretzky. That's why I'm so thankful that Gretzky got out when he did, because I loved the way Wayne Gretzky played hockey, and it would have been sad to watch him skate around the ice, either getting pumped by guys because they could suddenly now catch up to him. He wasn't as nimble, or just being a third line guy. Yeah. That, that, that just, it, that wouldn't be right. Enough pride to say, I'm going to, I can still play in a power play and it's time to be done. And maybe there's something to be said, Don, for the guys like that, for the Brady's or for the Roethlisberger's or for the Gretzky's who do have millions and millions and millions of dollars tucked away that you have the luxury to do that rather than some guys who feel they have to stick around. Well, Lafleur likely didn't. And the, the number was, he, he probably made, and you can look it up, but I'm going to guess that he probably made as much money coming back as he did when he left. And it would have been, you know, in, in today's dollars, would have been a not, would have been a lot of money, right? Would have been a, like Gordy Howe played till he was fifty three, something like that, for Hartford. Yep. I mean, he, but he, he did it. He did it allegedly more to play with his sons, because they were well. There was, I'm sure, there was decent money involved. But you, who gets to play NHL hockey with their kids <laughs> on the same line? It's Gordy Howe. Gordy Howe. If you knew anyone listening, if you if you if you like your kids, <laughs> I guess that's the starting point. But if you like your kids and you do the same line of work that they do, and there's a chance you could work with them, yeah, would you not try your best to make that thing happen? And so they got Mark Hunter in the NHL, or not Mark? Uh, Mark Howe. Uh, Mark Howe. Who's your other brother? Marty. Marty got Marty in the NHL. They played for the Marlies. It's uh, it's an interesting one. I, I I'm um, I don't I do not expect to see Ben Roethlisberger play. And if I do see him, if he does come back, it won't be for very long. Well, if he's that good, he should learn how to throw with the other arm. We'll practice that during the commercial <laughs> break. See how that goes. I know how I'll look when I do it. It's a phrase you're not allowed to use anymore because it's very politically incorrect. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, let us dive into the uh, the deep, treacherous waters here for a moment because we've been chatting about football and Tom Brady and the New England Patriots, and they have a guy on their team right now they've just signed last week from Oakland, Antonio Brown, who Sports Illustrated came out with a piece today saying, uh, so right after, he he's had problems in his past, he's had uh, issues Things that he not not problems that are he's a victim he's the cause of the problems, and as soon as New England signs him, 
there are reports and it comes out that a former trainer has sued him for and accused him of sexual harass, sexual assault, pardon me. And then today, Sports Illustrated comes out with another piece that points out a number of other issues that things he's alleged to have done wrong, people he has sexually harassed, sexually assaulted, other things like that. Where's the line if you are owning a team, and you do, you run a team, where's the line where you say, you know what, we do have a, a, a assumption of innocence that you should be not forced to sit out or be cut just because someone said you did something. But on the other hand, the line where you say, yeah, but we can't have a guy like this on our team playing for us because what he's accused of is so horrendous. Is there a line in there somewhere? How do you figure that line? Well, I don't know. You got to, this wouldn't be hard, but you got to be smarter than I am. It's it's interesting because there's generally in all pro sports there's a morality clause, and then somebody has to make a determination on morality. So there's a whole bunch of things. You know, they won't let them snowboard. They won't let them do other things. That's that not right. That, that's a per, that's a that's to I, save for their injuries. But yeah, no, no, I know. But I'm saying yeah. there's all kinds of clauses in. Yes. One of which is a morality clause. Yes. And I I guess. One of the fears would be if you make him sit out because of all these allegations and he's proven innocent of all of them, then you're likely going to have to pay him his full salary because he's going to say, I told you I did nothing wrong. Agreed. And the LA Kings, what was the guy's name? Uh, I don't want to say the wrong name, so I'm not going to say a name at all because I don't want to impugn someone who doesn't deserve it. But there was a guy that was accused of beating his wife who played for the LA Kings. And what the Kings did was say, look, we don't know if you did it or not. We're going to let justice run its course. We don't want you around the team because we don't believe that that should be here, but we're paying your salary because we don't know that you're not innocent. To me, that was about as close to the right answer as you could get, but I'm still not sure it was the right answer. I don't know what the right answer is. I don't I don't know if there is, and it would depend on, on what lens you're looking at it through. Um, there would be an awful lot, and I don't know what all the allegations are, but when you're, when you're talking about sexual assault and everything else, you're going to, it's going to be a pretty uphill, ba- I don't know, I didn't read the Sports Illustrated article. Um, it's going to be a bit of an uphill battle when you're taking on women's rights issues. If all the allegations are like that, um, that would be one lens. There would be the lens of your fans, the morality of the owner. You know, I mean, I said here multiple times that, you know, owners of professional sports teams make an awful lot of decisions based on money. Sure they do. I mean... And the owner of the New England Patriots, from what we've heard in the last year or so, I don't know that that's actually gone to court yet or not, but he may not be the beacon of morality decisions. Well, as I mentioned, it depends on what lens you look at it through. And so... You've cited that one that would be rather an interesting lens and the one I cited. So I don't think there's ever going to be, I don't, I'm positive that there's not just going to be a line in a bar you can say, yep, he's out because of this because that's where the line is and he's crossed it because a lot of them are allegations. And then the 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 issue is if there's multiple allegations, um, Weinstein, in New York, who's it's not a one-off. Yeah, the producer. And I have no opinion on his guilt or not. But um, w- when you get them lined up saying all these things, you start going, hmm. And that's now, where it becomes it, trickier. If there's a one-off and it's a personal trainer and she's a female and, you know, she thought 
you know, maybe thought, you know, I think we're in a relationship and then we're not, and then I get kicked to the curb. And then you go, I don't you know, what is the real motive here? Is it, is, it, it, is it real? And I'm not downplaying anything, but if there's a one-off and it looks like it could be a vendetta, you could destroy, destroy a guy's career on and, a simple allegation. And, and to be clear, we're talking about allegations. Like when you get into a case like with Ray Rice, people remember the, the Baltimore uh, running back who they had the video in the elevator of him slugging his wife different story. It's pretty clear what happened there. So you act on that. We're talking about something that you have someone who said he did this and he says, no, I didn't do that. And you end up with these teams. Now we live in a very complicated world. You end up with these teams who are trying to balance women's rights and me too, and the rights of the player and all these different things. And I honestly don't know what the right answer is. And, and you know what? And you're, and you're also, you're also making a judgment on behalf of the fans. Um, well, I don't should, because okay. the fans pay the bills. Yeah, but should you? The fans would probably if the, if Edie Amin could run the ball, fans would probably say, "Hey, sign him. We'll deal with the morality later." I'm not sure that you should be resting the decision on the the emotional maturity of a fan base. I'm, I'm not sure that speaks volumes for the caliber of fans that you might think are in the NFL. But I You're have a tendency you, to agree that. There'll be a lot of people turn a blind eye. You're telling me that if O.J. Simpson was still of playing age in his prime after the trial was over and could run for 2,000 yards a season, that there would not be teams whose fans would be saying, hey, maybe we should sign O.J. I guarantee you there would be. His name's still up at Rich Stadium. Not Rich Stadium. Dating myself. His name's still on the wall. Yeah, and I, I have no issue with that. I have no issue with that because I think that he, his name is up on the wall there for stuff that he did, A, as a player, and B, long before any of this stuff happened. I'm not arguing that O.J. Simpson is a good guy. It's the same reason I don't believe um, Ty Cobb should be taken out of the Baseball Hall of Fame, even though a lot of the stuff he did was during. But we're, 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 you, you judged for those kind of things for what you've done on the field. But what we're talking about here with Antonio yeah. Brown or others is w- completely off the field. It is completely a, a allegations of behavior. And where this becomes, why this one becomes so confusing, I, I don't know what percentage of professional athletes have at one time or another been accused of misbehavior of some kind, sexual or otherwise. There's a reasonable number, and we probably think it's a greater percentage than it is because we hear about them. We don't hear about everybody in society who's accused of this. So you get guys who have been accused of this stuff. And we just talked last segment, Don, about like Ben Roethlisberger, who as far as I know has never been accused of anything, but who's got $200 million of earning. It doesn't mean that women who accuse athletes are gold diggers. I don't mean that. But it's a complication that gets thrown into the mix, for sure. Well, that's why I say it depends on the lens, and you have to look. If it's just a one-off, then you go, okay, let's look at it on its merits. But if they start, if you start stacking them up like cordwood, you go, well, I'm not convinced these are all wrong. All, like, 
if you get, I, and I, again, if you can help me with the Sports Illustrated argument, but I mean, if there if there is a litany of people that are accusing There's you of the same now. thing, and they're not related, and it's not all sexual assault, by the way, it's not all allegations of sexual assault. It's not paying employees for work done and other things. Like they they basically paint a picture of a guy who's not exactly a, a sterling citizen. Plus, I don't know if you get rid of a guy because he wouldn't pay his bills, but. Um, no, I don't think you would. I don't but think when that's you're trying to paint that. a picture, you you throw it all in, right? If you had, if you have compelling, plausible evidence that he did the things that he's accused of doing, as far as a sexual assault or sexual harassment, I would say you know it becomes something that the team really, 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 really has to look at. I'm not sure, and and again, there will be people who will disagree vigorously with what I'm going to say because they say you have to believe the woman all the time. I think you have to, if you're going to, as you said, if you're going to essentially ruin a guy's career, you've got to have something there that the team can look at and say, okay, that's evidence that is going to tip the scales that I now believe he did this kind of thing. I'm not sure I want to be playing the game where every time someone is accused of something, immediately, as soon as the accusation is levied, that we have to kick the guy out of the league. I don't think that's fair. No, that's not. Well, you don't. Um, I, mean, I mean, if someone's accused of murder, you don't send them to the chair before the trial. That's right. That's right. right. Now, the CFL does, though. The CFL has had cases where guys have been accused of stuff, and they've said, you're not eligible to sign a contract. We will we will not sign off on this contract. The CFL has said that. And I disagree with that. I think you there you can maybe say that you can't play right now. Well, who who was the uh, Johnny Football? Yeah, yeah. Now, you was have that, to fulfill all these conditions before we'll certify your contract. Right. Now, and I don't think any of those were sexual misconduct things. I could be wrong. I, I think they were lifestyle yeah, things, drugs and other things that were involved in there. But it's it becomes it becomes very difficult. And again, to your point again, so let's say you let the guy play and it turns out that he was guilty. Well then what? And well, that, the flip Then I guess he's done. Yeah. But the flip side is you say to the guy, Well, we're not gonna let you play and he turns out to be not guilty. Well then what? That's my point. I know. If you set him out now, and he loses $40 million in income, and I'm guessing in numbers, of course. And he's innocent. I'm saying, if you own the team, I'm saying, Radley, well, you proved your point. You're a big shot. Where's my $40 million? I didn't do anything wrong. I, it, I wonder, and just blue-skying at this point, but I wonder at this point if you say to the guy, because we're saying maybe you do what the LA Kings did with what, whatever his name is. And again, I'm sorry, I've, I've forgotten his name, and, I, and I, I think I know it, but I don't want to say the wrong guy where we're going to pay you, but you just can't play. We don't know if you're guilty or not, so we can't withhold your salary. We can't do that, but you're not going to play. What if you had a guy who was in this position, so Antonio Brown, when he comes and signs, the league has something in their contracts that says, if you're accused of this and we do let you play, if we don't determine that we have enough evidence to stop you and we do let you play, if it turns out that you're guilty, you have to refund all the money because we decided to let you play. And if we... We're still talking about the same guy that wouldn't pay contractors, right? Well, that's true. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah well, Good I'm, luck with that. I'm sure hey, the NFL would have a better chance extracting money from him than uh, and, than Bob the plumber would. And good luck getting the IRS's share back. Too. Yeah, I know, I know. It, it, look, it's it's such a it's such a horrendously complicated, difficult thing that you don't want to be insensitive to people who make legitimate accusations. Dude, that's really odd. You know, we're problem solvers usually, but we haven't I, got that I, one figured out. I have no idea how to do with deal with this one. I really don't. No, there's a, there's, uh, because there's, you know, there's the, a bunch of people listening who think they do. Well, but the first the the first time the first time that you'll have someone who you let play and it turns out that they're guilty, you're going to have everybody saying, "See?" You now every time you got to get but then the first time then it swings back and yeah, the first right. time you say you can't play and then it turns out that they were completely not guilty. Now, what do you, I mean, it's just that the pendulum, you don't want to, you don't want to live in a, in a league where the pendulum just swings constantly. And you're constantly making it up on the fly. But I, I truly don't have, uh, have the answer. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.